Well, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, and my name is Dave. And, uh, and yet this morning I'm here through the grace of God and because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous works in my life if I try a little bit. And I think I'm here because of you people and, and people like you. I, I've always had great faith in the people of AA. They got me sober, and I think they've kept me sober a long time. And uh, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm a little bit like Rod was last night. You said, you looked me over, and you can tell I've been somewhere a long time. <laughs> and I, uh, my sympathy is with the gentleman from, from Michigan. And the other man last night, I'm sure he's resentful. Last night he had 29 years, and now this guy pops up with 30 this morning. Uh, and both of them, by God, are fire hazards, I'll tell you that. But... Uh, The, uh, of course, it's surprising, being an alcoholic is surprising, you know, to me and I'm sure to some of y'all that, that, um, do you know how a Tennessean says y'all and how a Texas has a difference in it? You can tell us right away, can't you? I, we got, we say y'all with some class now. But, <laughs> but um, I, uh, I easily get distracted. I want to clear this up, too. I didn't get here at 3 or 4 o'clock. I was here in time to hear Kathy talk yesterday afternoon. I was very glad I got to hear her. And I sat through it for a while thinking she was an alcoholic. I didn't know she was an Al-Anon. And uh, I I didn't bring my little Al-Anon. I have a story or two maybe to tell you about my little Al-Anon. She's a little love. She is from Paducah, by the way. I met her over at the University of Kentucky back in the early 50s when I was over there. But she's wandered off somewhere south. But I want to tell you about yesterday afternoon. I did not get here at 3 or 4 o'clock. I was here in time to hear Kathy start talking at 2 o'clock. I had been, though, in the Paducah vicinity for several hours. Carla told me coming west to get off at the first exit said Paducah, which I did. You've taught me how to follow some directions. And she said, and then you just bear right. And I did. And I just kept bearing around, and I was around this place, in the vicinity of this place, of five or six miles, I know, for an hour. I'd never been here before. I thought I'd been here before, but I hadn't. I've been over to the Executive Inn in, in Owensboro. And I kept wandering around this place, and I thought, my gosh, I've been sober. Why, I cannot believe that I'm lost in this damn place. And then I realized I'd never been here before. <laughs> I, uh, I have been through Paducah before. I want you to know that. Uh, I didn't stay long in Paducah. I was on my way from Fort Campbell to a little community down here, a happy little hamlet called Cairo. I uh, used to go over there. I, I, you wouldn't believe this, but it's true. I used to ride a Harley Davidson and, uh, and could ride it very well for a while. I never forget, I, I hadn't thought of that in some years. I had come out of Cairo one morning, and I was a little tired. And I stopped on a levee down here somewhere. There used to be a levee down there. And I parked my little motorcycle, and I curled up beside it, and I went to sleep. And about dawn, two of your best gendarmes arrived and asked me what the hell I thought I was doing there. And I told them I was just taking a nap, you know. And they encouraged me to move on. Uh, 
course, I was in uniform at that time, but it was a little shaggy and dirty. But um, I left. That was the last time I've been over in this part of the country, I think, except when I came down here one time with Dottie. But I, I, you know, the other great surprise I might point out to you of my being here sober is that uh, they called me down here. The, the, your speaking committee has made a hell of a mistake, folks. <laughs> they called me down and told me I, I was going to talk. I said, that's nice. I love to talk. They said, and you're going to talk on Sunday morning at the spiritual meeting. I said, well, now, now you've made a bad mistake. <laughs> but, of course, I guess any drunk, that was the kind of drunk I am that gets sober, uh, it's a spiritual experience, or, or a drunk like me wouldn't get where I've gotten. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. I want you to know up front I don't speak for AA. I also want you to know up front that it was 20 after when I started. These guys took up a lot of my time, and I, I want you to know I'll, I'll do my best. I keep my watch out here because around noon I get hungry. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, in any event, I want, as I was saying, I don't speak for AA. And um, I've got some opinions, and I guess they've been somewhat warped, but they're my opinions. They're not AAs. And I want to tell you that, uh, that nothing I say this morning is meant to brag. And certainly nothing I say this morning is meant to, to elicit any sympathy or pity from you folks. I want you to know I gave myself all that I needed before I got here, so I don't need your all's pity or sympathy anymore. But I'm just going to do my best to kind of tell you how it was with me and, and, and what happened. And how I am now. And uh, I began uh, my life up in New York City. You can tell by the accent I got. I'm from New York. <laughs> I, uh, I was brought down to the Louisville area when I was about 18 months old. And so you can we'll quit guessing. I'm 66. And I, so I was born in 1928. In what one of us, a lot of us folks who are older remember is the Great Depression. Uh, I know we've gone through a recession here in the last few years. A lot of young people think that was a depression. I guess if you were out of work, it was a depression. Uh, but we had a real depression back when I was a youngster. And my folks brought me down into the Louisville, Kentucky area. I've always said that I come by my alcoholism honestly. Uh, you can believe this or not, but that's 1930 when they brought me to Louisville. And to a little place called Linden, right outside Louisville. And they came down there, and my father was a sales manager for an airplane company. And I always said any sucker that was selling airplanes in 1930, there had to be something wrong with him. <laughs> in any event, I also was born with a slight defect. I was born a clubfoot. And I don't know what all they do to youngsters in those days, 60 years ago or so, but they worked on me and fixed me up pretty good. I always thought they, they, they've carried me along here for 66 years, and I'm right proud of both of those feet. But uh, I, I was, I don't guess I was the prettiest child. You can look me over now and see I won't bear a close inspection. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, in any event, I don't guess that my mom and dad were calling people in to brag about their youngin'. So they, uh, <laughs> they boarded me out. And uh, uh, they paid board on me for about two months, and then they were smarter than a lot. They disappeared and left me with Mama. <laughs> and you hear me talk about Mama. Mama Lieberman raised me. She's an old German woman up there in Linden, Kentucky. And uh, 
She was taking children into board at that time. Back in those days, the state of Kentucky didn't have the kind of uh, system for children you've got now. In fact, there were very few orphanages, I believe, at that time in Kentucky, state orphanages. And Mama had four or five youngins there that the state boarded with her, and she took me in. And in fact, shortly after I was there, uh, they, they built a little place called Kentucky Children's Home up there in Linden, Kentucky, right outside Louisville. And the state came by and picked up the four or five youngins that she had there, and they were going to pick me up and take me along, too, because I was an orphan. And Mama Lehman said, no, said, you're not going to take David. said, I'll raise David. He was given to me, and, and I'll take care of him. And, and Mama did. And that's the only Mama I've ever known. And I, I, I mentioned Mama. I mentioned my childhood because... I've grown to know in this program over the years that my childhood and my past are precious to me. And there are things I can look back on now, and, and, and I know some of the things that happened to me have, have ended up taking me where I ended up here this morning, really. Now, my Mama Lieberman was what you'd call a stereotype or a classic German woman. Mama was about, oh, five foot two or three, maybe four. She wasn't very tall, but she was as broad as she was tall. <laughs> Mama, Mama had the biggest bazooms you've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, she'd put Dolly Parton to shame, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and, uh, and she had steely gray hair and steely gray blue eyes, uh, and she had a tough German temperament to go with it. And she had an idea on how life was going to be. And Mama was, I think, only about a second generation in this country. So uh, she was a little paranoid, like a lot of foreign folks are. And I got older, and I understand why foreign folks are a little paranoid. You know, they don't know the customs, and they don't know the language. And, and, and people are inclined to kind of take advantage of them. And Mama had a lot of that paranoia in her. And Mama passed a lot of that paranoia on to me. And Mama had certain mannerisms. You know, and some of my, I can close my eyes, and I can see my mama, I can close my eyes and see my mama standing right there. She, she was something, and she had a mannerism about her, and I was a little bitty old shaver, and she had a way of getting her arms up under those bazooms, and she'd push them up. And then she'd kind of look down between them, down at me, you know, and I'd be looking up at her, and she'd be looking down at me, and she'd be issuing the orders of the day, and she'd tell me how it was, how it was going to be. Mama told me, I was raised this way, Mama told me, she says, David, she said, winners never quit and quitters never win. And she said, now, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And, of course, I walked a little funny as a, as a little guy, as you could well imagine, with my feet like that. And some of the people up around Linden, the boys, used to like to call me Ducky. And by God, when they said Ducky, they better start ducking. Because <laughs> we're going to have some trouble then. And, uh, and you know, I was, I was a, a, a insecure, frightened, feeling inadequate little fella. And I carried that through for years and years and years until you folks got me. That's the way I was. Uh, I, I thought I was being tough, and all the time I was afraid, you see. And, and, and I wasn't very big. And a lot of times they would, you know, I'd get a hold of a guy, and they had one guy had a favorite pastime there in Lenny. He lives two doors down from us, and his favorite pastime was to whip the hell out of David every time he got me running distance away from home. Uh, it happened all the time. He'd whip me one time, and I came home crying. Never will forget it. I go in there, and I said, well, Mama, I said, Jimmy, I said, he has whipped me, Mama. And boy, she said that, and she said, don't you come in here whining and crying to me. She said, by gosh, she said, you go out there and call me. I said, I want to see you fight him. 
Mom was like that. She was tough. She was tough. She told me, she said, David, watch out for them. I said, they'll steal your money. She said, you be careful. I said, and, and they'll take advantage of you. And you know, if you think my mama wasn't a motivator, I went over to Korea for a little while. And to show you how she drilled that kind of insecurity into me, I had a dollar bill I carried in my combat boot for 15 months. When I went in, I had it. When I came out, I had it. It was my combat boot, just in case I had to have a dollar for something. I don't know what the devil I was going to do it with in Korea, but I had it. I had it, brother. You know, we, we, when we're little fellows, uh, and yet, you know, some people after I talk like that, they say, boy, she was a hard old gal. She's a tough old woman. But by God, she was my mama. And she taught me everything she could to teach me how to get along out there. And she knew it was tough out there. And, and, and she did what she could to help this little old fellow. And I, I was mighty glad for it. I, um, I remember one time, you know, I always say I wasn't a young drunk. And I wasn't. I really didn't start drinking terrible bad when I got up in my 30s. But I'd, occasionally I'd drink some as a young person. And, uh, and had bad results, you know. I, I, I always say this, you know. I, I didn't get in trouble every time I drank. I really didn't. I didn't get in trouble every time I got drunk. But I'll promise you one thing, good young people. Every time I got in trouble, drinking was involved. Every time. And I didn't know that until I'd gotten older and looked back on my track record. But that's the way it was with me. I, um... Mama wanted me to have an education. And, and folks in my family didn't have much education. And she drilled that into me, too. She said, David, she said, you need to get an education. I said, you'll end up just like a dirt farmer like the rest of these people in this community. And she said, if you work hard, if you work hard and get a good education, said, you can be anything you want to be. And I believe that. I believe that. My mom was a motivator. Uh, I'll tell you some other things about mama, and, 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 and you'll understand why she's a motivator. She had pounded that into me, you know, that idea of never quitting. And I, I mentioned that to you. I, I mentioned it to, especially, I know there are a lot of young folks here who've only been in the program maybe a year or less. And, uh, and I, I mentioned that to you because I had that idea in my mind about, you know, winners never quit and quitters never win. And, you know, when I got this program, they told me I had to quit to win. By God, I told them they were crazy as hell. You know. That went contrary to everything I'd been trained in. I, um, and I mentioned that to you also. You can kind of see the kind of little fellow I was. And, uh, kind of how constantly violence and fighting was reinforced in my life as a youngster. And, uh, you, you can just imagine what I was. What a grand little chap I was. I just, just a, everybody wanted to invite me into their house on Saturday night for supper after I had about a fifth of whiskey in me, you know. You can imagine what kind of guy I was. Uh, I, I just, and I had a terrible case of mouthitis. Uh, and, 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 you know, I had to constantly let my butt get overloaded with my mouth. Or my mouth would overload my butt. And, and then I'd get backed up, you know, and I'd take in that position and I wasn't about to back up and then somebody just beat the hell out of me. Uh, it, it happened many, many times and I never understood what the problem was. I never understood why that was going on in my life. I started caddying on a golf course at Owl Creek Country Club right out there in Anchorage, Kentucky when I was about 10 years old. And, uh, 
I'm watching it, folks. I'm watching it. It's not lunchtime yet. Just relax. It's all right. Um, and why I caddied there, I caddied for a man named Judge Marshall. And uh, I looked him over, and you know, and he had everything that I wanted. Because I'd already gotten the message from Mama, and it was the wrong message. But my message I had received was that if you can get enough money together, everything would be all right. You know, material acquisition was it. And a fellow just had to learn how to make plenty of money, and he wouldn't have any problem. And I looked the old judge over, and he had plenty of money. He wore cashmere sweater. He played golf whenever he wanted to. Uh, he drove an old Lincoln, the great granddaddy of what you know as a mark. He drove a, a Lincoln Zephyr. That was an old 12-cylinder thing. Uh, there aren't many of those around anymore. Uh, one of my first loves was an automobile. I, I, he had a big estate in Anchorage, Kentucky. And sometimes he would let me go over across the state to the four-car garage and get that old Lincoln Zephyr and bring it across the yard. He drove all across his yard. He didn't care about yards. And I'd go get that old Lincoln Zephyr and drive it over to the cottage where he lived. He had two other big mansions there, but the judge was a little eccentric, and he didn't live in those. He lived in this little cottage he had built for himself. Strange man, but he had a lot of money, let me tell you that, folks. He was he was my role model, I'll tell you that. And... Uh, I'd go over, he had this old Lincoln Zephyr, it was black, jet black, red leather interior, had a white steering wheel, and uh, I remember it was about a 39, I believe it was, because it had the torpedo-shaped uh, ivory thing on the gear shift. It, that's when they'd come up onto the gear shift, onto the steering wheel with that, as I recall. And I'd get in that big old Lincoln and fire that all 12 string, broom, you know. And boy, I'd look down that long black hood, and we're sitting in the garage. I'm sitting in the garage, so you get ready to back this sucker out. A little bitty guy, I was about 11 then, maybe 12, and I'd get ready to back that thing. I could barely see through the wheel down that long black, and the hood looked like it's stretching here to that wall back there. And I'd sit there, and those old-timey cars, when you gunned them, sitting still in neutral, they'd rock, you know. And I'd gun that old car, and she'd rock like that, and I'd look down that... Uh, hood like that, and I'd look out this way and look at that way and say, mm-hmm, ain't I something? My <laughs> oh, God, I was something too out too, and I started drinking whiskey. <laughs> I tell you, I was. And any of that. Bless his old heart. But I decided then that before he got to be a judge, he's a lawyer, and before he got to be a lawyer, he had to go to a lot of school. I talked to Mom about that, and Mom explained to me very clearly that that was true, and that I'd have to get a lot of education if I want to do something like that. So I kind of made up my mind that that might be a good way to go. I, uh, you know, back in those days, too, you may have remembered this. There used to be a radio program called Mr. District Attorney. And the voice would come over the radio. We didn't have TV, all you good young people. When I was a kid, all we had this radio. And the voice would come over there, Mr. District Attorney. And it kind of goes through an oath of, oath of office, you know, uh, protector of the innocent, prosecutor of the guilty. And I know this is making Rod terrible nervous. I understand that, folks. And uh, <clears throat> in any event, uh, the... Uh, that that came across, and, and I hear that guy, and, and then you give a little 30-minute program about a little skit on, on the attorney general prosecuting somebody. Boy, I'd sit, listen to that thing just glued to that radio, I'd say, boy, that dude's got it. That's what I'm going to be someday. Well, you know, being where I was then, I had just about as much chance of getting through school and, and getting through law school and getting to be something like that as a snowball in Hades. But... 
We've all overlooked one thing, and I at that time overlooked one thing, and that was Mama. My God, Mama was there. I got out of high school. I played a little football. I had great hopes of getting a scholarship to, to Notre Dame or UT or UK. Uh, great, great ambition there. I was a 145-pound blocking back in a single wing. So you know who was looking for scholarships for that size, don't you? And my mama told me, she says, Why, David, you're the biggest damn fool I've ever seen. She says, there ain't no college going to come down here and give you a scholarship. She says, I'll tell you one thing, though. She says, I know a place where they'll hire you, and they'll feed you, and they'll give you a suit of clothes, and they'll put a roof over your head, and said, and when you get done, they'll give you your college. Now, I was 17 when I was getting ready to graduate from high school. A precocious kid, you might call me. And uh, she explained all that to me, and then she said, and you can join the Army. I didn't know at first what she's talking about. Now... We didn't have a lot of discussions in my family with Mama. I mean, uh, within 72 hours, I had enlisted in the United States Army. (laughs) You know, Mama, my Mama taught me a lot of things. I didn't get married until I was almost 28. And for very good reason, I'll explain it why. I think you're entitled to know why a man would not get married when he's 28. Um, It was because I was afraid of girls. Uh, I was afraid of a lot of people. I had a lot of financial insecurity built into me, and I had a lot of fear of people built into me, and I had a double dose of fear of girls. And the reason for that was that Mama explained to me in great detail that if you played with little girls, their bellies got big. And then, you see... And I came out of an area where we didn't call a United Nations conference to decide what to do about that. We got married when that happened in my day and time. So I didn't want to do that. I had great ambitions out there, so I just didn't fool around with girls too much. Um, I had buddies that always were ready to get me dates. I didn't mention to you, but I should have because this is the one thing I really am bragging about. I was captain of my football team. I was the smallest guy on that football team. I was not very good, I admit that. I wasn't very fast because, you know, I had these funny feet attached to me. But I'll tell you one thing I was. I was the meanest little son of a bitch on that football team. <laughs> and uh, so that, that was my history. That's why I thought I was going to get a scholarship, but I didn't make it. In any event, I went off the Army and I came back and, and I went out to University of Louisville. And sure enough, Mama was right. I had the GI Bill then, but Frank Camp was the coach up there then. I thought, well, by gosh, if I could get a scholarship... I had this extra money. We used to get to go through school. They pay our books and our tuition. They gave us $65 a month. Uh, and I thought, well, if I can get a scholarship, I'll get have a little more money in my pocket. I always wanted money in my pocket. I don't know why. But in any event, they taught me real soon up there. I was up to about 175 pounds then uh, after I got out of the army the first time. And, um, and in about, it took them about three weeks to destroy me up there at University of Louisville. Uh, I found out real quick that not only was I not going to get a scholarship, I was lucky to get off that damn team with my life, you know. <laughs> so um, I went on to school uh, for a little while, about a year up there. I've often thought there are certain things that alcoholics do that I call badges of alcoholism. Fear, you know, we have and of people and fear of insecurity and, and, and loneliness and uh, things. That, there's one other badge that I always thought alcoholics, young male alcoholics have anyway, and that's love of automobiles. There I was, freshman at the University of Louisville, 
And I fell in love with the prettiest little Ford 49 Ford Coupe you ever saw. God, it was a lovely car. And I had to have it. And I bought her. I took her home. I was so proud of her. But then I had to quit school. I always, I don't know, another badge maybe of alcoholism is jobs. I don't know many drunks like me that never had just a job. Two or three jobs is usually what is required. At least it was for me. Now, when I was going to University of Louisville, I had a job. I was a short order cook and a bartender. And, uh, and then when I quit school, I was a short order cook and a bartender. And then I was assistant manager in a standard oil station down on River Road in Louisville. And I had, I had took all this money to keep my little black car up and to pay the note on it, you see. And I tried that for about a year. I wasn't doing too bad, I thought. Uh, I smelled, either smelled like beer or gasoline and oil all the time, but other than that, it was all right. But I, one day I was home and it was Mama. And Mama says, David? Is again. You're the biggest damn fool I've ever seen. I said, well, why is that, Mama? She said, you're down there changing on and messed around with those old dirty cars. And then you're over there tending bar with a baseball bat in your hand trying to keep the peace. It was down Frank and Story Avenue at that point. I don't know how many know Louisville, but Frank and Story Avenue. Well, the clientele was not white, white tux and, and all that. Let me say that. They came off the old dump over there. And then there was the, the Ertl's Brewery Company was down the street and had a lot of packing houses down there. And it was what you might say a mite rough. And Mama said, there you are. Said, somebody go coming off that dump someday with a hawk bill and open you up. So uh, she said, why don't you go back to college, boy? I said, Mama, that's the best idea. And I went off and I signed up to the University of Louisville. I was going back to school in the fall of 1950. Unfortunately, you may remember, something happened in about June of 1950. They started a little thing over there in that little old peninsula right off of Japan called Korea. Now, I had been in Korea and I'd been in the infantry. Uh, and to show you, if you think I if you think I wasn't tough when I was seventeen, let me tell you something. I made buck sergeant in the infantry before I was nineteen years old. And we weren't losing people in combat, you know. They just looked around for tough ones and I seemed to be pretty tough. I was tough, you know. And they made me a buck sergeant. That had a disadvantage though, ladies and gentlemen. When the Korean War came along, I then had a year of college. I'd been a buck sergeant in infantry in Korea. And if you think they weren't looking for Davy Allen, folks, you're wrong. I, I don't, 1A wouldn't touch what I was. They were getting ready to take me off again. And I went to Mama. I said, Mama, I said, they're going to, they're going to call me back in the infantry and I'm going to go back over in Korea. I said, Mama, have you ever, you even know what a rice patty smells like in July and August? Mama, my Mama was never at a loss for ideas. <laughs> never. And Mama says to me, she says, why, David, Eddie, now all these people I got are foster people. When I talk about these cousins and all that, they're all foster. They're no blood relations to me. In fact, they still don't claim me. But um, Eddie was a cousin, kind of a cousin, I'd call him. And Eddie was a captain in the Air National Guard. And Mama says, David, you go see Eddie, and Eddie will get you in the Guard, and you want to go back in there, but you're being the Air Force. So I did. And sure enough, Eddie did get me in there. He said, David, there's one problem. He said, on October the 10th, we're going to be activated. I said, I don't give a damn. I said, I'd rather be flying up there than down there walking along with that OM-1. So I went off again for a couple of years. Now, 
Y'all are probably sitting there saying, I wonder if this guy ever took a drink. <laughs> and uh, the fact of the matter is, I did drink. I, 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 I am an alcoholic. And I'll, t- and I'll try and explain to you some things that maybe you can relate to it, I hope. Now, I'm the kind of alcoholic to talk about in chapter 3. I'm a real alcoholic. If anybody wants to know what one looks around, look me over. I am one. Um, that big book in chapter 3 talks about a real alcoholic, and it talks about progression, if you remember it. And that's what happened to me. I progressed. I, I, I could quit, but I couldn't stay quit. And, and um, the, uh, the alcohol did things for me. I called it a, a disease of deception and perception. It deceived me. It told me for so long that I was all right. I could justify and minimize and rationalize any kind of bizarre behavior in which I engaged. Always could. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, so we get straight. Maybe I should have said up front. I do not suffer from cocaineism. I don't know what the hell it is. I don't suffer from heroinism. I don't know what that is. I have never smoked a left-handed cigarette. I've never rattled any pocket rockets off the roof of my mouth. I don't know what they are. But if you want to ask me something about alcohol, I can answer that question for you, I believe. I, 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 I'm a little bit like old jackass from up in Louisville. I, I'm, here, I'm here because I drank too much alcohol. That's, that's why I'm here. And I'm here because you people and people like you taught me how to live a life without alcohol. And Rod said it so well last night. Alcohol really wasn't my problem, as you can already see, can't you? I had all the character defects in place. Everything was ready, and all you had to do was put a little booze on it to amplify and aggravate all those character defects. And that's what I did. That's what I did. Every defect of character the big book talks about, I had. I got resentments when the first batch was issued, you know. Yeah, I, I, can, I can remember. I'm okay. I thought I was getting a little hungry, but I'm all right. Um, the, um, the disease of alcoholism in me not only deceived me, but it changed my perception of everything. You put me in a bar on a stool with low lights, nice music, and a big mirror there. And you put about four double martinis in me. And all of a sudden, I looked in that mirror. And I was a good-looking big sucker. And every girl in that bar was sitting there contemplating violating my body. That's what alcohol did for me. I, um, I'd be sitting... I know you already know that I got through school. Mama saw to that. Bless her heart, she passed away when I was a senior at University of Kentucky. But... And later on, I got through law school. I did that. 
And uh, and later on, I passed the bar, and that's not the bar you're thinking about. And they gave me a license to practice law. And about a year and a half after that, you won't believe this, but they made me an assistant district attorney general. One of those little guys that Rod loves so well. <laughs> well, you would say, you know, all my childhood dreams had come true. And I guess they had. Really, the only sad thing about it was I know for a certainty now that about the time I got to be a lawyer and got to be appointed assistant district attorney, I was a, a full-blown alcoholic. Full-blown. And I drank my way along through that law practice and through that attorney general appointment. We covered 11 counties from Lebanon, 90 miles east up in the Kermelin Mountains, and then all the way from Sparta on the south side to the Kentucky border up around Tompkinsville, up through there. And people have always asked me and said, well, David, how in the world could you drink alcoholically and be an assistant district attorney? How could you do that? Well, I guess alcoholics aren't too bright, but we're not just plum dumb. You know, and I stayed in my circuit of 11 counties when I drank. That's, that's, and people say, well, big deal. So what's that? Well, they don't do it anymore. But back some years ago, 25, 30 years ago, when I was assistant district attorney, we then had among the state troopers in our state what was known as professional courtesy. <laughs> By God. The, the state troopers just didn't arrest the attorney generals. It was bad manners, and they didn't do it. <laughs> and they took care of me. God love them. For years, they took care of me. They were my enablers, you know. If they'd have cracked down on my tail sooner, I might have got to you people sooner. But I wandered happily through that 11-county circuit. And, you know, and we had a little town up there east of us called Crossville, Cumberland County. God, how I love Cumberland County. Those people know how to party. Those people party 24 hours a day, sometimes seven days a week. And they love me. Oh, they love me up there. And, and I love Cumberland County. And I'd be in Nashville about half blown out. And I'd be sitting at that bar waiting for one of those gals to violate me. And uh, all of a sudden... That voice would come wafting in and it would say, calling me. I'd hop in my car. By that time, I'd be driving Cadillacs. And I had a little blue Coupe de Ville, a lovely little piece of equipment. It came to an untimely fate later in my drinking career. But I climbed in that little Cadillac, you know, and up I-40, I'd go from Nashville. And she ran. She bounced off somewhere. 105 or thereabouts when you got her running straight out. Um, and that's the way I was at the drunk, you know. I only had two speeds. It was a dead stop, full speed ahead. You know, <laughs> wasn't much in between there. And I'd be rolling up I-40 and I'd hit up there through good about Putnam County and the blue lights would come on back there. And I'd ease her over to the stop, you know, and put that window down. The state trooper would come up and he'd look at me and say, Why, General, where in the hell are you going? Well, now, some of you young alcoholics may not understand this, but I'm going to explain it to you very carefully so that you don't miss it. It is necessary, if you're going to be an alcoholic, that you learn how to lie. <laughs> very important that you do that. And so when he said, where in the hell are you going? 
I turned to him very bright and I said, well, they've had another killing up there in Cumberland County and i got to go take some witness statements tonight. He'd say, well, General, go on, but hold it down, please. He said, you're going to kill yourself or somebody else. And off I'd go, all up the road to Crossville to spend one or two days or three days or whatever it took, you know, or until the Attorney General found out where I was and he sent the state troopers to get me to carry me to the county where I was supposed to be prosecuting cases, you know. I was a, not a bad prosecutor when you got me sober. I really did okay, you know. I had a great reputation. Uh, and boy, let me tell you something I could prosecute. Man, could I, I could lay it on that jury on a jury driving while intoxicated. Man, could I do that. I, I could get so outraged to think that, ladies and gentlemen, to think he's on your public highway, publicly drunk, in an automobile running down your highway, and God knows who he'll run over next, you know. And, oh, I could lay it on him. I could, I could tell him how it was. And, uh, vehicular homicide was my specialty, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, uh, but things didn't go well for me. They were not going well for David. I, um, I've, I've had many automobiles. Uh, I never was much of a fender bender. I mean, the surest death warrant on an automobile was the title it in my name. That fixed it right there. I had, I had a little Chevrolet convertible. I'll never forget it. I loved that little car. And I was wandering down from Monterey, Tennessee, which is up on the Cumberland Plateau, and you come down the first plateau to uh, Cookville, which is Putnam County. And as you come down to Interstate 40, if anybody's ever come west out of Knoxville, you will know that there's some pretty good valleys down yonder. Now, I didn't have long blackouts, but I had many blackouts. That's many, many, or many, many, however you want to put it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would be driving along, and, and all of a sudden I'd wake up wrapped around a telephone post, or, you know, <laughs> or a guardrail, or whatever happened to get in the way of my car. And on this particular night, as I came down that hill, something happened. And I parachuted that little Chevrolet convertible down in the hollow, way down there. I was pretty outraged when I got down there because I tried to start and it wouldn't start. And I thought, well, Jerry, the mortars are making some more junk, you know. They won't even run anymore. <laughs> but the next morning, what happened that night is I found a bootlegger and, and was taken to safety is another story, which I have to tell you at a later date. But uh, my assistant that worked with me was Johnny, and Johnny came over and got me. And he took me to his house that night. And the next morning, we went back to Cookville where they had my little car. And I looked her over. And I, I was immediately sorry I had, you know, bad-mouthed GM the night before. Because I could see that the front end of the car was about 18 inches shorter. And, of course, it had smashed the battery. And that's why it wouldn't start. But this car is a total. Most of my wrecks ended up totals. <clears throat> In fact, as I looked at the car, I realized I had a little problem. You see... I had about three cars then, as I recall, and the insurance company had called me before this wreck and said, David, Mr. Allen, they said, not David, Mr. Allen, as your various policies come due on your automobiles, we want you to know that we are no longer going to renew your policies. Well, I told them, I said, you can't do that. I said, hell, I said, I'm your lawyer over here in Lebanon. You can't cancel my insurance. Well, by God, they did. And, um, but I had a good friend of mine. He got it back for me. But I knew then I was in trouble. So now I've got this little Chevrolet, and it's totaled. My first thought, 
I, I think this is the way alcoholics must think if they're going to survive. I said to myself, I will trade this car in on a new Chevrolet, drive the new Chevrolet home, and Dottie will never know what happened. And I fully intended to do that, except I was getting up in my alcoholism at this point, and I was a little shy of cash. And so I couldn't do that. I knew I'd go to eat this car. Well, things, we were in bad shape that morning, you know, and I wasn't too steady as it was. I mean, I'd had a harrowing experience, folks. You know, when you drive a car off the interstate and drop it down a hundred feet or so in one of those hollows, it's enough to make a man nervous, and I was nervous. Well, I looked that car over, and I looked John over. I think one of the last things that an alcoholic may lose, it was one of the last things I lost, was my ego. Ego is very important to me as an alcoholic. Uh, it carried me a long way. And I had lied so much and had, you know, rationalized and justified so many crazy, bizarre things that I, I just ran out of lies. But my ego was still intact. And I looked at John and the used car man standing there, and I looked at my little Chevrolet, and I did this. I said, well, John, I said, it's just another small tragedy in the life of a great man. <laughs> yep. There you are. All there was to it. And so I continued to drink. I was getting pretty close. I was getting what we call the shank of my drinking about that time. I was getting close to you all. Uh, I'm going to mention a couple of things to you that, just in case you're not convinced that I belong with you. I started out in my drinking. I might mention this about Dottie. She's my little Alanon. Lovely little child. A uh, bit, bit vengeful, but lovely. Uh, my friend Ray O'Kay from Miami calls them, what does he call them? The, the Daughters of Perpetual Revenge. <laughs> but in any event, I don't really mean that. But she's a tough little sucker, Dottie is. I knew that she had some Native American blood coursing through her veins. In fact, I think it was her great-great-grandmother was a full-blooded Cherokee princess. I've seen that gal. I've seen a picture of her. Meaner looking than hell. <laughs> and I started out my drinking career with the thought in mind that I might be a spousal abuser. And uh, it wasn't long in my drinking when I began to go into that course <clears throat> And we were standing in the kitchen, and I told Dottie I was going to beat the hell out of her. I don't know what she had done, but you know it had been something outrageous to hurt my feelings like that. She told me that I'd better not try. Now, Dottie, I'm a lot bigger than Dottie. Dottie right now doesn't weigh about 120 pounds. She's a cutie. But she told me, she said, you better not try. By God, I did try. <laughs> Let me tell you, I attacked her, and she mounted the damnedest counterattack you've ever seen. <laughs> and she grabbed a butcher knife, and she cut the hell out of me, is what she did. <laughs> and let me tell you something, good friends. By God, that was before she got to Al-Anon. Now, she... <laughs> 
And if you think she ain't something to behold, if you think she won't stand her ground, hell, what happened over the little bighorn with Custer wasn't a circumstance of what happened to me. <laughs> In any event, you know, and it's so good to look back on those things and be able to laugh about them. And so good for me, but, but my drinking got to the point, good friends, where it wasn't a laughing matter. Uh, my drinking got, got pretty bad. I walked into a courtroom one morning to prosecute a person for first-degree murder. And I looked over the indictment, which I could not read. I looked over the witnesses sitting in this little room. One of them was the widow of the man who had been killed. I couldn't remember her name. I couldn't read the indictment, so I didn't know the name of the person who had been murdered. And uh, we had a judge who had been sent in from 200 miles away because this case had gained some notoriety. And I knew I might be able to shoot the bull with my old judge, but this boy had come 200 miles to try a lawsuit, and he meant to try the damn thing. Fortunately, I had a friend of mine who was a defense attorney, knew me very well. We had drunk together and been friends together. And he looked me over, and, and it was obvious to a person that was deep, dumb, and blind that I couldn't try a lawsuit that morning. And he came to me and he says, he says, David, he said, you can't try this lawsuit, can you? And I says, Jack, I sure as hell can't. I said, I can't grab my fanny with either hand. He said, well, you sit down at the council table, he said, and just keep your mouth shut and don't breathe near the judge and I'll take care of this thing. And he did. He told that judge the damnedest lie I've ever heard. And the judge believed it. And he continued that case. But if I'd have tried to try that case in front of that judge, they'd have had my ticket. There ain't no doubt about that. And they should have had my ticket. They should have had my ticket a long, long time ago, the way I operated, folks. And that's what happened to me. You know, we talk about somewhere in that big book, I guess chapter 3 or 4 or something, it talks about we reach a point of complete and incomprehensible demoralization. I didn't know what that meant. I wondered for so long, why? David, why would you go through nine years of college to get to be what you want to be? And like Rod, I love what I do. Loved it all my life. I really, since I was a little fellow, wanted to be a lawyer. Thought they're the greatest, think they're the greatest people in the world. And here you are, just going to get rid of all of it. You know. I, uh... A friend of mine down in northern Mississippi describes it the best way I know how. We reach that point in our life as an alcoholic, man or woman, I think. And I reach that point where, where the Spirit, that thing in me that made me want to do and, and, and succeed and, and be good at what I was doing, was gone. It was gone. And I didn't know where it had gone. But I knew I didn't have it anymore. My friend down there calls it the alcoholic's personal level of desperation. That was my bottom. 
I didn't have to go down there on Skid Row in Louisville or go down under the bridge in Nashville on First and Broad. I didn't have to get that far. I got, thank God, thank God I got off of this elevator somewhere up around the, the, the ground level. I didn't have to go to the basement. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that. So I, I reached my personal level of desperation. And I think one of the things that hastened that right before I came to you people, I used to pull straight in my driveway, and my driveway back where I parked the car from the street was about a hundred feet. And I'd pull my car straight in. Now, I had a turnaround on the left, but that was a turn I didn't want to hazard at night, the condition I'd get in. I'd just drive straight in and stop, hopefully before I hit a tree back there in the yard. <coughs> in the morning, I'd get up, and I'd back the hundred feet out to the street. And, of course, as I'd back up like this, the house is over here, and the back porch is there, and the little stoop is there. And Dottie would come out to say goodbye to me. Now, when I married Dottie, she was about 125 pounds, five foot six. And let me tell you, she's just as good a looking gal as ever walked around the state of Kentucky. And by this time, by this time, after 15 years of my alcoholic drinking, I'm now 46 years old. My drinking had taken its toll on Dottie. And I start to back that car out and I look over my shoulder out that window and she'd be standing there on that back stoop of that porch. And she'd say, see you tonight, honey. And I'd look at her and she weighed about 95 pounds then. Little old legs looked like two toothpicks standing down there. Face drawn. She looked like hell, ladies and gentlemen. And I did it to her. Me. My drinking did it to her, see. She wasn't like that, by God, when we started out our marriage. So, I'd back out, and the time I hit that street, I'd be crying. Because I knew the chances of my being home that night were slim to none. Slim to none. I'd be lucky if I got home by 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, drunker than a goat. About that time, I... I never forget, I'd stand in my, in my, try and shave and look out the window of my bathroom and I could see people driving down the street going to work. It was in the springtime, just before I got here in May of 76. And I looked out and saw those people driving along and I says, my God, look at those people. They're going down there. They've got no worries or trouble. They're going out and they're going to work today and they're going to enjoy themselves. And what in the hell am I going to do? And I knew what I was going to do. I told you about the disease of perception. No matter how bad a shape I was in, no matter if I couldn't sign my name, and I couldn't sign my name many mornings anymore, I knew if I could just get about six ounces of booze down me, I'd be okay. I knew it. It worked. It always worked. You put six ounces of booze in me and I could sign my name, the hell wouldn't have it. See? You put six ounces of the booze in me and all of a sudden all the work and the problems that I had for that day were gone. My perception changed completely. I would say to myself after that third or fourth martini or, or three or four good double shots of, of whiskey, I'd say, I wonder what I was worried about. Everything's all right. Yeah, you know, uh, everything's all right. Well, I stood looking at that mirror this morning, and this guy looked back at me, and I'm big now, 
If I'd gotten this big in high school, I'd have made that full back on the Chicago Bears, by gosh, I'll tell you that. But in any minute, my head was about this big around, and I had that alcoholic bloat. Looked like if you just punched me with your finger, I'd explode. <laughs> and I was developing an Irish whiskey nose, and a vein was starting to cross my nose. And my eyes were all yellow, you know, and, and, and bloodshot. I would say it looks like a couple of fried eggs and a bowl of ketchup. And I looked in that mirror, and I said, Davy, what in the hell are you going to do? Son, are you going to put it all down the tube? Is that what you intend to do? And that poor sucker looked back at me, and he said, I don't know. And ladies and gentlemen, I didn't know. I didn't know. I had all that education. The big book says self-knowledge will avail us nothing, and it's right. I'd handled enough drunks and alcoholics and crime and domestic relations and spousal abuse. You know, I knew what alcohol did, but I didn't know I had it. See, I didn't know I had alcoholism. There at the last stage, I began to find out I did have it. And I went on my last three-day drunk the week before May 23rd. I had just tried a hell of a lawsuit, if I do say so myself. You see, I sobered up for a month. I could sober up. I was greedy, motivated for money, and I'd sober up, and I'd work like hell, and I could try a lawsuit. And I just won this lawsuit and just made more money than any white man ought to have. <clears throat> Two days later, a judge asked me about going out to lunch. I hadn't had a drink now in about a month. He said, let's go over to the oyster bar and we'll have a little seafood. Well, he's just like I am. He's an alcoholic. You know, people say, well, <clears throat> David, he shouldn't say that so-and-so is an alcoholic. Well, let me tell you something about that foolishness. <laughs> if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it looks like a duck, by gosh, it's a duck, you know. But he took me over there and we didn't get much seafood, but we had a lot of beer and martinis and all that. And I took off and I was gone for three days. And I came back home on May 23rd, and I'd broken all my promises to me. I'd left the county, I'd gotten out of my county in my car, and I'd gotten drunk, and you guessed it. <laughs> this second morning, I woke up in Crossville, Tennessee. Yeah, old Crossville. So I, I decided that something had to be done, and I started looking for a friend of mine in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I found him. And he took me to my first meeting on that night of May 24th. Over in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And I got a friend here from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Mike. And Mike may have been there. That's the first meeting I ever went to. I don't know. And so I began the long, wonderful journey in this program of finding out that alcohol wasn't my problem. Never had been. Not my problem today. Living. Living is my problem. And living was my problem. And my problems in living have been greatly alleviated by you people and by the big book and by the 12 steps. And my problems in living have been greatly alleviated by going to service work. I went into service work after I'd been sober a year. That's a little bit ahead of where the uh, uh, service manual tells us we should be, but nobody else is going to take it. And the old gal that had it got drunk or took over somebody and said, well, we'll just make David our GSR. <clears throat> Came as a great surprise to me, and I didn't know what the hell GSR was. But I've spent many years now in service work, and service work has got to be one of the greatest forms of 12th step that I've ever known. You know, 
I don't think many of us really, until we look it over, know how disastrous this disease of alcoholism is. They got all kinds of statistics, but it seemed like the, the reasonably reliable ones that somewhere around 5 to maybe 7% of us at the top get and stay sober. You know, that pretty sorry odds. Sorry odds, because this disease we've got is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And for no reason at all, after we've gotten sober, it tells us for one reason or another that we can drink again. And of course, we know we can't. We know we can't. I, uh, I've seen so many of my friends that have done 12-step work for me that have drunk again and died as a result of going back and drinking. They've 12-stepped me. Those people have. I, uh, I spent a lot of time in service work. I love it. And by the way, there's a statistic that might be of interest to some of you folks. I don't know where they get all these damn statistics, by the way, but they got them. And one of them that I like says that somewhere in the vicinity of 75% of the people in service work get and stay sober. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I sure do want to believe it. And, and, and I've hung into service work all these years, and I've done, I guess, about everything a guy can do in service work. And let me tell you about service work. You, you, you really ought to try it. You really ought to try it. I met an old gal in New Zealand. I don't know how much service work she did. I don't even know if they got a service structure in New Zealand, but I think they do. I think I'm looking forward to seeing some of those folks out there in San Diego. I know that here before long at that international conference. Because the Lord willing to keep my health and my life, I'll be there. I'll tell you that. And she told me she's a big old fat gal, and I'll never forget it. And she had a great big hearty laugh. And she said, you know, David, and they call... Lots of people, they call them mobs over there. They got strange things in, in the mobs. And she said, you know, David, she said, she kind of like mama. And she said, you know, she said, working for this alcoholic mob is a lot like wetting your pants in a dark suit. And I stood there waiting for her. And she said, nobody notices, but it gives you a nice warm feeling. <laughs> so... You can carry that along with you. I, I noticed last night that we had quite a few young folks. And, and I'm one of those who believes that, that young folks and new folks are the lifeblood of our fellowship. And I know, by gosh, how good a person feels when you've been sober for a month or two. And I know how dangerous it is for an alcoholic who's gotten sober to feel good, too good. And I'm going to close, and you'll notice that I have done this in just about exactly the allotted time, <laughs> with this little reminder for our good young people in the program. Just in case, just in case this day is the day they say, well, I don't know if I can make it. One day at a time, it can be made. One day at a time, this program can be made. And I got a friend over in South Carolina, and I heard him been years ago tell this story, and I have never forgotten it. And I did it. And since I did it and it worked for me, being an alcoholic and a bit of a controller, I think it might work for you.
<coughs> Dupree tells the story of the man who retired who was a city dweller and he moved out in the country and he bought a little farm and he had always wanted to raise pigs. He just liked little pigs. He thought they were the cutest things in the world. So he moved out there in the country and he bought his little farm and he went out and he bought himself a mama hog. And he brought her over and he put her in the lot and the next morning he went out to look for his little pigs and he didn't have any pigs. He went back and complained to his wife and this went on for two or three mornings. And finally his wife said, well, why don't you carry the mama hog down the road? There's a hog farm down there and I'm sure that farmer will know what the solution is to this problem. Well, of course, he just moved out there. He all had it was a car. He didn't have a pickup, but he had this wheelbarrow. So he gets his old mama hog up and he loads her in the wheelbarrow and he pushes her down there to the farm. And he gets down there and sure enough, the farmer told said, yeah, he said, she needs some fellowship. So he gets her fellowship and that evening. He loads her back up in the wheelbarrow and he takes her back home. The next morning, he races out there to look his pigs over and he's got no pigs. His wife said, well, said, you know, said, this fellowship takes time. You know, I mean, it just takes time. You've got to be patient. And so he loads the mama hog up and carries it back down there for some more fellowship. And that night he wheels her back. This goes on for two or three mornings. And there's still no pigs. Finally, he's exhausted. Well, you can imagine pushing a mama hog in a wheelbarrow is no small task. <laughs> so he tells his wife, he says, honey, he said, I'm worn out this morning. He said, would you go out there and check and see if we got any little pigs this morning? So she goes out and she comes back and she's kind of smiling. He says, well, she said, no, she said, haven't got any pigs this morning. He said, but that mama hog's back up in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> well, you know, this was a spiritual meeting, right? <laughs> We're getting on with it, folks. Huh? We're doing all right. The point of that story, as Dupree related it to me, what you know, for you young alcoholics, with that, that overtone of the sexuality, if you're climb up, though, in this wheelbarrow, this fellowship uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous, you climb up in here with these folks that have been sober, the winners. You climb up in this old wheelbarrow of AA, and we'll give you the damnedest ride of sobriety you've ever seen. Thank you very much for your patience.